Welcome to Unboxy World, the podcast where philosophy meets tech. In each episode, we're connecting the dots between philosophy, technology, society, science, and progressive thought. And together with brilliant minds across the world who dare to challenge the way we think and live in today's society, we are unboxing our minds one episode at a time. I am Ria Salting. I am a tech professional during the day and a philosopher at night. And if you enjoy this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to the newsletter to never miss the latest unboxed episode. So let's get started. Let's unbox ourselves. Welcome back to Unboxing World. Have you ever thought about how money is created? Well, even though I went to a business university, I hadn't put too much thought into this until a listener reached out to me and asked me, Maria, do you know how money is created? My instant response was, well, it's printed, right? But then he said, but if only a small percentage of all the money that exists in our society today is actually physical money, then how is money created in our new digital era today? Because if it is neither coins created from gold, like back in the old days, nor actually physical cash notes, what really happens when new digital money is created in a new modern world today? So together with Brett Scott, who is an author, a monetary anthropologist, and a former financial broker, we today investigated this seemingly simple, but in reality, actually very complex question. So in the episode today, you will learn the different types of money and the different, different types of roles they play in our society today, how digital money is created and the unknown role of cash in our society today. And the cliffhanger here is that we're not talking about the right to pay with physical money, but actually something completely different. And why we should lastly care about how money is created. So let's dive in and welcome back to the show. So hello, welcome Brett Scott to Unboxing Correct. World. It's uh, excellent to be here and uh, thanks for getting me on. Yeah, thank you for joining. I am um, I'm excited we managed to find time to do this uh, interview, uh, to dig into how money is money, actually created, yeah. which, um, <laughs> which is actually quite interesting because I went to a business school and, and um, uh, when someone in my network actually uh, suggested I do a podcast episode about this topic, he asked me, and I wasn't able to answer that question. So the question of, of how is how is money created? <laughs> or, okay, exactly. Sure. Yeah, yeah. My my instant question. Okay. But yeah. Uh, so we will dig into that now. Sure. Yeah. It's not, <laughs> so it's not well. I guess not the first well question generally. <laughs> yeah. No. Which is interesting that um, you don't learn that in a you know in a business and economics university. For sure. So, no, it's a very big problem um, in education more generally. So then how is money created then? <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, uh, before um, leaping into that, it's worth noting that 
in our society, we have more than one type of money, which means there's actually different processes for the different types of money. So that's the first thing to notice. We're not there's not um, a single mm-hmm. form of money. Um, there's this uh, that we we have a um, I sometimes call it the Atomi, which is a, a it's a, a acronym for the one type of money illusion. Uh, so the one type okay. of money illusion is this problem people have where they often just imagine there's a single form of money. So, you know, in the UK, the people think there's a single pound in Sweden, like a single krona. Um, but in reality, there's um, something like the pound system or any national currency is actually a kind of an ecosystem of different players who are kind of interconnected in various ways. Um, but the sort of the, the two base players in a kind of modern monetary system is the, the state acting via the central bank um, mm. and the commercial banking sector. So like who are the big, the big banks in, in Sweden? Um, I've kind of forgotten their names. Um, mm-hmm. It's um, Swedbank, Handelsbank and SCB. Yeah, yeah so, so the, they'll be like big, play, big players big in the Swedish monetary system and also big issuers. Mm. So... Um, most people, if you were to ask them, you know, who issues money, they think the central bank does. The central bank does issue money, but it issues a comparatively small part of the monetary supply, the money supply. Um, and in reality, quite a large proportion of the money supply is actually issued by the banking sector, by the commercial banking sector. Um, I don't know the, the figures for Sweden, but in the UK, um, at least 90% of the money supply will be issued by the commercial banking sector. So players like Barclays, Santander, HSBC, um, rather mm-hmm. than, than the Bank of England. So the Bank of England uh, will issue the, the sort of the first layer of money. Uh, the banking sector will issue the second layer of money. And then there'll be actually third tier players like PayPal and stuff who will issue sort of a third layer money. Um, so it's, it's worth... From the outset, just being aware that uh, there isn't a single issuer, which means there's not a single uh, way that it's created. And also the other second thing to be aware of is that they don't only issue money, they also pull money out of circulation. All right. There's any issuance process. Um, there's also a, a pullback process or a redemption process where so money gets pushed out into society, then pulled back in. Um, so central mm-hmm. banks, for example, are pushing money out, but they're also pulling it back in, in various ways. But what, what could a tangible example, because then you three types of money, like, um, what is PayPal money? Like you said, PayPal companies like PayPal would also, what would that be? <laughs> sure. Yeah. There's, so there's different, different layers. Uh, the, the first thing to bear in mind, the, so if you, if you want to understand mm-hmm. the, the first player, the state, Mm. It, the best sort of body of uh, monetary theory to look at is called chartalism. Uh, chartalism is a a m- way of describing state involvement in money systems. Um, your average economics course won't teach chartalism because the average economics course doesn't really teach money at all. Um, in most mm-hmm. of the economics courses, they simply have a kind of 
they just assume that money exists and they've got these very strange abstract models of describing it. Whereas chartalism gives a kind of historical account of like how money is actually like issued out by states and then pulled back in and the political processes. So there's a just park it to the side that there's a kind of a whole body of theory around um, state issuance of money um, called chartalism, which in, in its modern, its most popular modern formulation, or at least most well-known modern formulation right now is called MMT, Modern Monetary Theory, um, which is popular in the US among the political left, at least some parts of the political left in the US as a way of describing monetary systems. But that describes the first player in the monetary system. The second player mm -hmm. is the banking sector. Um, and, and probably the easiest sort of metaphor to use to start to get your head around this is to think about casinos. I actually wrote a piece about this recently called the Casino Chip Society, um, which was designed as a sort of counter phrase to the term cashless society. Um, but I, I, I can get into that. But, but the, basically, the, the term casino chip society um, I was using to describe the situation where we become dependent upon bank-issued money rather than state-issued money. But, but in this piece, the, the, the core metaphor that I use is casino. So if you um, imagine going to a casino with um, let's say a, a hundred pounds or a hundred dollars or a hundred krona worth of uh, state issued money in the form of cash and you hand it over at a casino, uh, they'll give you chips. Okay. Now a chip in the context of a casino is a privately issued form of money. All right. It actually is a legal promise saying, um, if you bring this back to us, we'll give you cash, all right? But you can pass that legal promise between people in a casino, all right? So it's a sort of um, chips are the sort of secondary form of money that will be usable within a casino, but you can then at the end of the night go back to the cashier and ask for your cash back, as it were, all right? Um, and in a, in a way that casino chip is a it's a second layer type of money there in that situation, um, but in many ways the uh, this is a good way to start thinking about the banking sector because if you're and um, if you're in a place like Sweden, the vast majority of people just only use their bank accounts rather than the cash system, which means you're almost always just using bank issued digital chips essentially. All right what's called bank deposits are actually a lot like digital casino chips, right? They're issued out by the banks. Okay. So when you hand cash to a bank, it's not storing cash for you. All right. It's not holding your money. What it does, it takes ownership of that and issues out a digital chip to you as it were. So any number that you see in a bank account that you have is not, um, Swedish government money or British government money or US government money. It's bank-issued money, all right? They, in the background, will do things at the central bank where they'll have forms of reserves and stuff where they're, they're managing um, their, their um, sort of piles of, you know, their state money reserves. But what we're using in that situation is a second-tier form of money, 
And then if you've got a player like PayPal, what does PayPal ask you for? PayPal says, okay, hey, open an account with us, transfer to us bank deposits to our account, and then we'll give you PayPal units often, right? Mm-hmm. What PayPal's that. doing is it's, it's, it's getting your bank to take, to give you these sort of second tier digital chips and pass it to PayPal's bank. So PayPal is now going to own these second tier chips and then it's going to issue the third layer on top of that. Okay, so now you now you basically control a PayPal mm-hmm. promise for a bank promise for a state unit of money. So it's a third layer kind of thing, right? Um, but of course, if you went to PayPal and you said, um, I, want to, I want to redeem my units, my PayPal units back for my bank account money, they're going to transfer it back to you and, it's going to, and they're going to destroy those units. Okay, so basically... When you're getting the units, they're creating these new units. They're like creating new types of money. But when you ask for it back, it's being destroyed. All right. Similar, if you go to an ATM, you're destroying bank-issued casino chips, as it were. All right. Because you're ta- it's, it's like going back to the cashier and saying, give me cash back. They have to like destroy or like withdraw from circulation. Um these second tier chips. I'm hoping this is kind of making some degree of sense. But the, 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 important, the mm-hmm. point to, to remember is that, is that every, every um, moment of money issuance is a, is a process whereby these institutions are pushing units out. But if you take those units back to them, it destroys those units. Okay. Just like, you know, you arrive at the mm-hmm. casino, they issue chips out to you. If you take the chips back to them, those chips are leaving circulation. They're no longer in circulation. They're kind of getting destroyed, all right? They'll then issue them out to somebody else and they'll get brought back and destroyed again, okay? And this is what's happening in the, in the mainstream monetary system all the time. You know, the state is issuing money. When, when money uh, comes back, it's getting destroyed. The banking sector is issuing money um, and it's getting destroyed. And so there's a lot of these kind of like... Um, expansion and contraction processes going on all the time in the monetary system. And a lot of what's called monetary policy is the uh, central bank trying to influence those expansion and contraction processes in order to affect the underlying uh, kind of production in society. Um, the, maybe the last like very important thing to say in this introduction here mm-hmm. is, sorry, this is like a bit long, but the banking sector's core superpower, as it were, is that it can issue out um, a lot more of these digital casino chips than it has in state money, all right? If you go to a normal casino, a casino for every chip that they issue out to the people who are coming to the casino, it's going to be backed by cash that's held by the casino, all right? But the banking sector has the ability to issue out far more of these digital chips than they have in actual res- what's called reserves, right? And this is sometimes called fractional reserve banking. Um, but it's actually not the best way to put it. The best term to use is credit creation of money. Banks can basically just issue out new um, chips at will in order to extract loan agreements from people. And that's what's, what's called the bank mm-hmm. lending money. And I think that kind of that is a good segue to the original question, right? How money is how is money created, right? <laughs> sure, yeah. I mean, 
But I mean, techn technically speaking, how it's created is it's written down as just these sort of like legal agreements. I mean, that's that's what's that's what's happening, right? So if you, um, you know, when you go to in the case of the original of original like state issued money, the central bank and treasuries and these different players are issuing these units out, um, and those will be legally guaranteed to be redeemable back for tax for taxes. Okay. So every single time you pay taxes, it's destroying money, all right? I always quite enjoy this when I'm paying my tax. You know, there's a moment where you sit on, you know, in the, when I was in the UK, there's like the, the UK has this like digital system now where you pay your tax. Um, and they have a bank account address for the, for the government where you're supposed to send them the money. What most people don't realize is as you send you, when you instruct your bank to transfer to the government's bank, that money is being destroyed, right? That's like, it's like sending money into a black hole, right? Because what's happening is that the original issuer of the money was the state, and that money only becomes money once it leaves the issuer, all right? If you hand it back to the issuer, it ceases to be money, okay? So this is one of the, the classic process with state money, is it issues the money out in order to pay for things, okay? So when a state is trying to pay for something, it just issues out money and it pulls it back in through taxation, all right? And that so basically destroys it through taxation. And this is one of the core things that chartalism will teach a person, all right? Is that states use taxation to destroy money. They don't use it to like collect money to then pay you know that's what the people will often imagine that states are collecting taxes and so that they can raise money to then spend on things it's the other way around states just can spend money into existence and they have to pull it out through taxation okay um which is partly what gives the logic to the monetary system um does that make sense mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, but I think like so. I well, the way I understood it, how money uh, is created is that um, I mean, before it was uh, you, we had <laughs> we had gold to back up um, like the, the the coin, the gold coin was as much worth as as the actual uh, money um, coin. Um, and then we started using the notes, um, and then the central banks were able to actually issue money that didn't exist. But what I didn't know was that actually the commercial banks could issue money that don't really exist. It does exist. I mean, that's, that's a misconception. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't get too hung okay. up on the gold thing. I mean, lots of people in kind of like, like especially amongst conservative libertarians and stuff, they get kind of fixated on, on kind of like gold. And there's various, there's various reasons for that, um, political reasons and sort of almost like mental um patterns that are required um mm. to have a kind of a commodity fetish for money it, but so just park to the to, mm. to the side this idea that somehow gold is like a uniquely like valuable type of money right the the because many people have this like distinction they'll say oh what it isn't real money anymore it's very very real right the monetary system is incredibly real right and the main thing to to realize is that in um you are able to to to, to grasp this you've got to kind of step back a few steps mm -hmm. right 
Um, I come from an economic anthropology background, which tends to be a much better uh, discipline for understanding monetary systems because it looks at a lot of pre-capitalist societies. Pre-capitalist societies are not using gold for their exchange systems and their, mm -hmm. their type systems. They will often use informal reciprocity type systems. They'll use promises, all right? Um, in a small-scale society, people are often tied together in webs of obligation where they will be issuing forms of promises to each other, all right? Now, this becomes a good way to understand um, later forms of money because, so if you think about what a promise is, all right, if you're issuing a promise, the promise only becomes a promise once it leaves your lips, right? Or once you write it down, but it only has power insofar as you're actually going to honor it and redeem it. Okay, so if you issue a promise to your friend, you are creating a kind of an artifact that your friend can almost hold, right? They say, hey, Maria gave me a promise. I'm holding a promise from, from her. To you, that promise is a liability. It's something you've promised out. It's something that's going to put you on the hook, as it were. To them, it's an asset. It's something they can, they can claim back, right? It's, it's something they, they could put on the, the asset side of their balance sheet if they had one, right? Um, and the other thing you'll notice is that if a person comes and asks for you to honor your promise, the promise gets destroyed, right? Like if you promise your friend a back massage and then you give them the back massage, the promise gets destroyed, right? So you issued it out, they held it, they brought it back to you and it got destroyed and they got a back massage, right? And actually this is how, and that's very, very real. Somebody could say that promise is unreal, but it's not. It's an actual social contract. It's something that, that really exists, okay? And it's very similar to the monetary system. Lots of the kind of, um, gold fetishists will try to claim that money doesn't exist anymore, that it's all sort of fictional numbers and stuff. That's totally not true. These are legally enforceable, redeemable promises, right? Backed by, you know, legal systems and then military force at some at some level, right? This is there's nothing unreal about that. Okay. And in the case of the state, the nature of the promise is slightly different to the, the, the nature of the 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 banking sector part of it. But both the state and the banking sector are issuing different styles of these, uh, these units. Um, but okay, that's quite a long way around. But, but the, let's forget about the state part of the monetary system. What many people have become aware of in recent years is kind of what I was describing earlier. The fact that the state isn't the only player in the monetary system. The fact that the commercial banking sector actually issues a large part of the money supply. Many people didn't originally know that, all right? Still, many people don't know that. But it's, it's becoming kind of more widely known in, in recent years, albeit it's often misrepresented mm -hmm. in, in how it works. Okay, so um, the, the basic thing, as I sort of hinted at earlier, is that this, the commercial banking sector is able to issue out these... Um, essentially casino chips, digital casino chips, right? Mm -hmm. Which is a type of a promise. It's an IOU, okay? And they can issue those out mm -hmm. 
in exchange for loan agreements, all right? So if you go to a bank and you say, you say to them, hey, I want a mortgage, what they're doing is that they're not giving you state money. They're issuing out new digital casino chips to you, all right? And so they can issue out more than they actually have, right? Yeah, well, much like you can issue a promise more yeah. than you have. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's 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 a it's a legal construct, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. um, so so they issue out, they can issue them out at will, but it's not in the interests of a commercial bank to issue out too much because they can go bankrupt if they do that. You know, imagine if you as a person, and I'm I'm using this, I'm trying to bring this sort of back down to a human scale so you can sort of understand some of the, or the listeners can understand some of the, the dynamics of this. Imagine if you just went out in the street and just like arbitrarily issued out thousands of promises to people. That's not in your interest. Right? You would hit inflation. Well, you're also <laughs> going to go bankrupt. You're going to be overwhelmed yeah. if those people actually demand that back demand you to actually honor your promises it's similar with banking the banking sector the banking sector can create money at will but bear in mind what we're calling money here to a bank is a liability it's not an asset they're issuing out promises against their reserves all right that's what their second tier mm -hmm. casino chips are right like imagine a casino that was just arbitrarily issuing out loads and loads of chips to people and then all those people go back to the cashier and say hey i received this chip from you give me cash now because that's what the casino chip is right it's a, something saying you can come back to mm -hmm. me and demand something from me so when people talk about bank creation of money banks are creating money but they're creating it as a liability to themselves right they're not they're it's not an asset that they hold they create they issue money to us right and what they're getting in exchange is loan agreements. So, for example, in the case of this mortgage, you go to a bank and you say, um, hey, I want a mortgage to buy a house. The bank says, okay, here, here is like 500,000 pounds worth of new casino chips, essentially, that we've issued out to you. Look, you can see them in your account. There they are. All right. Now, you're basically holding a claim against the bank now. You then transfer that mm. to the owner of the house and you get a house, okay? Now, what the bank gets from you is a legal contract saying you're going to pay us 600,000 pounds at some point, mm. right? And you're not going to pay it to us in the form of second tier digital casino chips. You're going to give us to us in state money, all right, in first tier money. The whole business model of banks basically revolves around them, and this is kind of complex, but it revolves around them issuing this second tier form of money in the short term, right, in order to extract longer term promises to get more first tier money for themselves, all right? So this is what, mm -hmm. they're, this is what they, they, their whole risk, man, all their risk model is all about. They're saying, look, we're, when we're issuing money out, we, we expose ourselves to risk. But we hope that in the long term, what's going to happen is that we're going to accumulate more and more reserves from this process. Because in the, in the long term, we're demanding more money back than what we're promising out right now. 
I think for me, the aha moment that, <clears throat> so my, my uh, friend in my network, you asked me, so Maria, do you know how money is created? And my instant question was, was maybe most people would uh, say is that, well, uh, governments print money, right? And then he said, well, if we're in Sweden, how much money do we have? Like printed money, oh, it's like 3% or whatever it is. And so for me, like the aha moment was really like, oh, okay, actually, so the central banks and the commercial banks, right? They have, they can issue money that do not exist in the real world, right? <laughs> yeah, again, but, but that's like that, they that, did, did not exist like no, physically, just, right? Bear in um, mind that actually the mm, physical mm, incarnation of money, what's called cash, is just like a physically written down mm, version of the digital money, right? There's mm, it's it's just yeah. a different implementation form. Like much like if you're issuing a promise, and I'm using a promise as a sort of intuitive way to just sort of get mm. you can pick up a piece of paper and you can write the promise down and hand it to your friend, all right? Alternatively, you could just say, hey, I'm just going to note it down on an Excel spreadsheet that I have and just, you know, I'll just remember, look, hey, here, I've issued you a promise on my Excel spreadsheet. That's the main distinction between mm -hmm. um, the cash form of money and the digital form of money, right? The cash form, the central bank literally writes, writes out the promissory note and hands it out. In the digital form, mm -hmm. which... Um, the central bank also has these digital form of money, which the commercial banks are able to use, which is called reserves. All right. The digital form of central bank money, they literally take the cash, destroy it and write it down on a computer instead. All right. So like, this is what happens if you, if you, if you're in Sweden or, and you, and you use cash, all right, you'll, you let's say you like, it's been issued out but you take it to a shop owner, a big, a big like retail chain, and the retail chain deposits it back with their bank. The bank says, hand this back to the central bank, the cash, in exchange for digital reserves instead. All right? And that's what's going to happen. The, the commercial bank that's mm -hmm. holding the cash says, I'd rather hold this in digital form rather than holding it in physical form. Right? And they take it to the central bank they give it to the central bank and say, credit my digital account instead, right? And that dig the, the digital account that the, the commercial banks hold at the central bank is where these reserves um, mm. are, right? When they want to create cash, mm. what they reverse their process. They say, okay, some of our customers want cash. Take some of my digital reserves, destroy those digital reserves, turn them into paper notes instead, it's like taking a digitally written down promise and writing it down on paper instead, right? And now we'll hand it out via ATMs. Okay, so so the this is mm -hmm. like the there's an interchangeability between cash and the reserve system, um, and which is you know quite mysterious to most people. Uh, but mm -hmm. the best way to sort of look at monetary systems is is you got to you, you got to look both at the layer of the money and then how it's implemented, all right? So physical cash is layer one money in a physical form. What's called reserves is layer one money in digital form, all right? And then our current second layer money is always digital, okay? So bank deposits in digital form, right? Which are like digital casino chips. But you could imagine a bank issuing out a physical form of a second layer form of money. So for example, in the UK, 
the in Scotland and Ireland, actually the commercial banks are allowed to do this. So if you go to Scotland, you'll find the Scottish pound. The Scottish pound is technically issued by the Bank of Scotland and um, the Royal Bank of Scotland, two Scottish commercial banks, issue out a physical form of layer two money. Okay. If PayPal mm -hmm. wanted to, they could take the units in your account and turn it into a cash form, but they're not going to do that. All right. So there's like, there's you can kind of like make a matrix between the sort of the layer of the money versus it, is it implemented digitally or physically. All right. And they're always legal instruments. Right. And then we have the latest NFTs and tokens, but that's a, a new story, that's right? A separate <laughs> that's kind of um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but so, Okay, but if we go back, then why should we care about how money is created at all? Like um, you were saying before, um, that we are the, the money is destroyed when we pay with tax taxation. Do you mean that it's the inflation that we're paying back, or um, yeah, wh why should we care about this topic? <laughs> well, it's the entire underpinning of global capitalism is monetary systems. I mean, mm -hmm. it doesn't global capitalism does not exist unless you have these huge legal institu legal institutional structures that un underpin the monetary systems. Um, so that's one one thing. But also, there's huge politics. Mm -hmm. Okay, so a lot of my work um, more recently has been advocating for physical cash. All right, and. You know, many people when they when they look at like cash, they're like, oh, but it's like some old form of like outdated money, and uh, it's just like a it's just like a sort of slower physical version of the of the of the stuff I have in my my bank app, which is totally not true. All right, it's issued by a different player who has different political interests, and if you're interested in maintaining, for example, a balance of power in the monetary system, you better maintain the cash system, otherwise your entire monetary system becomes controlled by mm -hmm. an oligopoly of private banks. And big tech companies, right? That's a political issue, and that's something people people yeah, should be see. should care about. For example, um, in the case, for example, of um, the banking sector, there's a huge amount of power that gets transferred to the banking sector through their ability to do that so-called fractional reserve banking or credit creation of money, which is that process I was saying where they're able to issue out loads of these kind of digital casino chips in exchange for for for, for, for loans essentially right um, that is a political power that banks have and it has huge impacts on society there's a lot of monetary reform groups who would say that the bank the ability for banks to create money like that has huge um, basic it gives them a lot of control over the direction of any economy okay? What banks choose to issue money to affects the whole direction of an economy, all right? So when, for example, there's like one group of entrepreneurs who, who have one sort of set of things they want to do, and there's another group of entrepreneurs who have another set, another set of things they want to do, and they both approach the banking sector saying, please issue credit to us, you know, aka, please issue new digital casino chips to my, my account so I can pay my vendors and make this business idea happen. Like the banking sector is making those choices as to who gets supported and who doesn't at some broad level. All right. They're not the only player in the financial system, but they're a big structural player. Okay. 
And if they have structural incentives to issue money to certain things rather than others, they can really affect everything. So if they're like issuing far too much into like real estate for unproductive uses rather than productive uses, that has huge political consequences in the country. All right. Which is why people argue you have to have these balances of power in the monetary system. You can't have the, the, the second tier players dominating everything. You need to have this, these sort of uh, balances, right? So mm. that's, you know, th these are, there's many other reasons as well. <laughs> that's interesting. I've mostly been thinking about, um, you know, uh, like financial inclusion when it comes to, for example, you know, people who aren't as digitized and et cetera, those things that those would be the main reasons for maintaining cash. But I was not aware of this, uh, what you just sure, mentioned. Sure, yeah. I mean, the, the vast majority, <laughs> um, of people, especially if you're in the middle class and you're kind of in innovation circles, you're most likely to believe mm -hmm. that cash is kind of like the horse cart of payments mm -hmm. and digital money is like the, the fast car of payments. In mm -hmm. reality, what is far more like is cash is far more like the bicycle of payments and the digital money is far more like the Uber of payments. All right. And it's like superficially Uber seems convenient, but you don't want Uber controlling your entire transport system. All right. It, it's only empowering insofar as you have a choice to not use it. All right. So like Uber might, you know, the, the only reason Uber, and I don't know if you use Uber in, in uh, Sweden, but uh, yeah, We the only it, yes. reason those types of, of, things feel empowering is that you're not forced to use them you can get on your bicycle if you want and when you have a different option right whereas what's called the cashless society is essentially a situation where you have no choice you have to use it otherwise you cannot interact with other people all right mm. now and that basically is a huge transfer of power to the private banking sector and big tech companies If you're interested in maintaining a balance of power, you have to create this alternative. You have to protect the alternative, which the Swedish government has not done, all right, which is why they're now panicking about it in the central bank, in the Reichsbank, because now they're like, oh, oh, damn, we basically allowed the private banking sector to take over the monetary system, right? And so that's now a structural problem in the Swedish mm -hmm. monetary system. Um, but the, the whole thing, you know, this is why... Um, the, the cash system really is um, something that needs to actually be quite, you know, much like with, you know, bicycles. Uh, you have to sort of have an active cultural movement that says we demand bicycle lanes. We demand to not be made to feel ashamed for using a non-form of like a non-Uber form of transport. Um, it's the same thing with a sort of pro-cash movement is to say, this is not about old people who can't use digital systems. This is about not wanting to be dominated by big tech and big finance. Mm, yeah. Albeit I'm aware that, you know, in, in the, you know, I don't know if all your listeners are, are mostly Swedish or not, but you know, in Sweden, there tends to be very high trust in institutions. So a lot of Swedish people are just like, well, it's fine, you know, because, you know, our institutions work and so on. But like this is, this assumption is not shared in, in many other places in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think we haven't touched upon inflation, but would um, would there be a higher risk of inflation if we didn't have any cash, or would it be covered by legislation? Of well, I mean, look, inflation is a process whereby your sort of units of money um, lose power 
Um, and the one thing you would, I would say, like, is that cash exerts a kind of friction in an economic system. Now, if you're stuck in a very high, in a kind of growth fetish in an economy, that's always seen as bad. All right. Um, they'd be like, oh, it's inefficient. It slows things down, blah, 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 blah. You know, this is the kind of standard narrative that you'll find in any kind of growth-focused mindset. Um, and one of the big reasons people, why, why there's a kind of anti-cash ideology is precisely that it sort of slows down the workings of global capitalism, <laughs> right? Relatively speaking, if you look at like how players like Uber, how players like Amazon and stuff work, they require digital money in order to scale and accelerate everything and automate everything, right? So ideologically, mm -hmm. um, the tide has turned against the cash system because it stands against corporate acceleration, okay? Now, if you're interested in stuff like inflation, actually, sometimes it's better to slow things down than to accelerate things, Okay, so there there is a there is like a like a kind of a link maybe with the cash question with inflation, but inflation often tends it tends to like be a kind of bigger thing than uh, you can you will still have inflation with cash based systems or like systems that have cash right. So it's not unique to um, mm. yeah like that's it's that's not mm. the whole sort of picture around inflation. Um, the big thing with like understanding an inflation process is that you've got to understand this. This is where chartless theory helps a lot as well is that the underlying value in an economy comes from human beings and ecological systems, all right? Um, and human beings, uh, we're locked into vast interdependent networks with each other, all right? We, we can't survive with, without each other, okay? Um, and we are, those networks are held together by monetary systems, Right. So the way that you survive in a modern capitalist economy is you try to um, you have to get things from other people. Right. But you got to find you got to convince people to give you money in order to obtain those things. Right. I mean, that's not that's a very crude description. Right. Um, so the system, if if there is an underlying the, the underlying structure is always human beings and they're like labor power and like natural resources. So, so, so for example, imagine you're like out on the frontier of some, you know, zoom back to like the sort of 1700s, you know, in some kind of like, you know, colonial project where you've arrived in, let's say the, the American frontier or the South African frontier somewhere, right? And what lies before you is quite low like a bunch of land that doesn't have very many people on it, right? Or you use your like colonial authorities to like uh, sort of throw out like, your local people, all right, or dominate over them. And then you're basically going to take over this land. Now, in that situation, there's a huge amount of productive capacity in the system. You know, here you are on the American frontier and you can like start your farm. You can create new things, okay? Now, in that situation, mm -hmm. like issuing new money to those people is not going to create inflation. What's going to happen is they'll use the, they'll use the money to mobilize um, new production, right? It's going to like 
kick into action new production and the system is going to expand. Your economy is going to expand outwards. Okay. But if you've reached the sort of capacity of your economy, let's say that everything's like filled up, there's no more productive capacity available, right? And you issue money in that situation. Well, then it's going to create inflation because you're essentially outstripping the underlying human um, labor and like natural resources capacity. So one of the big intuitions you want to have around inflation is to say, there's no um, singular way that money creation affects inflation. It really depends on how much productive capacity is in the system. If there's a whole bunch of unemployed people who have nothing to do and there are things that they can do, then issuing new money will not create inflation. All right. It'll basically just mobilize new production, which will neutralize the inflation. All right. But if you are issuing money into like unproductive sectors like real estate and stuff with no new production is happening, but it's going to cause a bunch of new like activity that could, that can cause inflation. All right. Um, alternatively, it could be like if there's an external shock to your system, like, you know, some one particular good, like suddenly massively skyrockets in price for some unknown reason, such as like a war causing the oil price to like spike that can have a shocking, like a kind of shock effect on the rest of the, the monetary network and cause everything to have to kind of recalibrate upwards, which is what they was happening right now, for example, with like sort of Russian um, induced forms of inflation. Mm-hmm. So that's a very crude kind of like overarching. Mm. Yeah. So um, if we, if we future gaze, um, you know, in, in, in your opinion, what would the, uh, optimal and utopian world. What would the financial economic system look like um, to also to to um, you know support the transformation that we need to do to meet the sure, climate change? Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's a. It's you know, it's not like bear in mind the monetary mm-hmm. system is the sort of underlying part of the broader financial system. Okay. So if you're trying to do forms of um, reform. Monetary reform tends to be a deeper, bigger game than more specific forms of financial reform. You know, so, you know, and I've worked a lot in this kind of stuff in the past in different types, different areas of of reform. But, you know, trying to change the entire monetary system is a harder task than, say, like um, placing regulations on fund managers on, on what they should be, like, investing in. Okay. So, like people who are involved in like ESG investing and stuff for like fund management firms, that's a sort of uh, kind of a smaller scale, easier task in a way to put that legislation through than trying to like, mm. you know, change the entire underlying monetary st- structures. Because um, bear in mind what a lot of financial institutions like funds and investment banks and hedge funds and private equity firms, all of them, none of those players create money. They all use money that's created by the commercial banking sector and state, right? They create sort of new contracts on top of the monetary system saying, you know, hey, transfer, you know, like if you, if you, if you launch like a bond issuance thing, you, you know, it's not creating new money. It's taking a bunch of money from one place and moving it to somewhere else. Okay. So that's, but, and you can place regulations around that. You can say, you know, in that those parts of the financial system, you, there, there's things you can do to sort of 
um, steer that type of money towards, you know, green projects or stop it going into destructive projects. There's loads of stuff like that, right? Um, and that's a kind of slightly different thing to doing some like, you know, reform of the underlying, you know, telling a commercial bank you cannot create new money. I mean, that would be a very, very big structural change. Okay. So there are monetary reform groups who try to argue that commercial banks should not be allowed to do money creation. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but anyway, I'm kind of waffling here. But like, like there's, you know, th- so this is like, there's a bunch of stuff within the, the existing mon- financial system or like monetary system that, that that can be done. But then, of course, there's a bunch of, you know, on the sort of margins of that, there's lots of um, alternative experimentation. I mean, the whole crypto world is kind of based around at least imagining that it's sort of creating an alternative. Um, and there are subsets of that which have sort of progressive ecological kind of thinking. Um and the whole sort of pre-crypto alternative currency world um, was a lot of those attempts were trying to try to relocalize money or um, sort of change the power s- dynamics within monetary systems. And I've, I've worked on lots of these alternative currency projects in the past, which are attempting to sort of create these marginal alternatives. Um, I mean, we can go into those if you want me to or, or not. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, what, what's your take on them? Because um, <laughs> I mean, Bitcoin, as I in in very simple terms, supposed to, uh, you know, reach an equilibrium where no more bitcoins are created, right? Which is a way to um, balance inflation, right? I mean, if you if you are operating under the assumption that Bitcoin's a monetary system, then theoretically yes. But if it's mm-hmm. if you're operating under if you're looking at what it actually is, then no. Um, what Bitcoin actually is is a system of digital collectibles that you can buy and sell for money, right? Which is different to a monetary system. So you can't actually use any of these sort of like the, the, the Bitcoin industry spends lots of time trying to say things like, oh, it's deflationary and so on, but it's not. It's something you buy and sell for money, which means it's not involved in the monetary system at all, right? Um, it doesn't get to claim that it's competing against the dollar, right? Because it doesn't. <laughs> People use the dollar to buy it and they resell it for more dollars. That's basically it. So all those arguments, those theoretical arguments in the Bitcoin community where they basically say, oh, it's deflationary, that would be the case if it was actually used as, a, as the monetary system. But it's not. So that you don't that argument doesn't pertain to, to it. Right. So the reality of what Bitcoin actually is, and I've been involved in the Bitcoin community for at least since 2011. So I've 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 been through all the Bitcoin hype and I'm very like versed in the whole Bitcoin spiel. Um, but, you know, a lot of the Bitcoin world kind of came out of a sort of a couple of sort of intuitions, one of which was that a cashless society would be very bad for surveillance purposes. Right. So we needed some kind of alternative form of digital cash to act as a counterpower. Um, that That was like one kind of intuition behind lots of the original movements that built the components that led to Bitcoin. All right. Um, But there is a sort of more specific thing in the case of Bitcoin where there was this idea that what the ideal monetary system is, is one that's not only decentralized, but also cannot be changed. It has a static money supply. All right. And again, this is theoretical because it doesn't operate as money. But like, at least mm-hmm. if it was theoretically implemented as a monetary system, it would have the static money supply, which in the sort of Bitcoin worldview is supposed to be a good thing. 
Um, and <laughs> in reality, that's a very difficult thing to try and uh, have in a dynamic economy is a static money system. Um, it would very quickly break. Um, you basically can't have okay. a static system in a dynamic, a static money system in a dynamic, a dynamic economy. It, it, it breaks very quickly, and it also transfers huge amounts of power to older people, basically. All right, because if you think about how how economies grow and work, your early, your earlier uh, members in a society. Um, Later, they're taken over by younger people who are expanding it, expanding the economy outwards, right? And imagine if you had this constrained supply of money where basically all your younger people have to basically beg the older people to give them the units of money that they've accumulated, all right? This is a very crude way of putting it. But basically, the credit, the, the, the credit the class in your society becomes much, much more powerful when you have a constrained money supply, okay? So... Mm in the context of a growing economy. Okay, so if you have a growing economy and a static money supply and a creditor class, that creditor class is gonna de facto become more powerful, which is why you historically find um, these type of austerity mindsets or these kind of like um, hard money fixation in conservative parts of your business community and your banking community, all right? It's a conservative ideology that comes out of this idea that it's, it's, it's naturally good to sort of choke economic systems because it basically will transfer power to the creditor class because everyone will have to go to them to get the kind of like money they need to expand. All right. Which is why they hate the state mm. when it issues new money, because they're saying you're breaking our power. All right. You're issuing new money, which is breaking the power of the creditor class at some level. This is one interpretation. Okay. Um, and in Bitcoin, they kind of picked this up, but they sort of added a kind of like revolutionary narrative to it, saying that like a constrained money supply is a good thing, okay, for the, every, the everyday person, mm. which is definitely a very controversial political statement to make. Uh, <laughs> uh, mm. so, they, so, so, yeah, that's basically, mm. but, but in reality, what Bitcoin's ended up being, it isn't a monetary system. What's actually happened is that the actual monetary system has captured it um, the actual dynamic expanding and contracting money, money system has captured these static collectible objects and turned them into commodities to be traded, right? Which is why they have a, a US dollar price all the time, all right? Um, and once it has that price, it then derives a secondary, uh, a secondary phenomenon emerges from that, which is that you can swap them for other things that have prices via a process called counter trade. All right, which is like I use the monetary price of the Bitcoin unit to decide how much of it I give to somebody in exchange for something else. All right, which is not a monetary exchange; it's a it's a counter trade, which is like a very poorly understood concept in public. But but basically, it's like when you take something that has an existing price and you swap it for something else that has another price, and you use the two prices to work out the exchange ratio. All right. So anybody who says they're making, they're buying things with Bitcoin, what they're actually doing, they're implicitly reselling it for dollars and then using the dollars to buy the other thing. All right. Or they're they're using its US dollar resale price to get things. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and that superficially looks like a monetary transaction, but it's not. It's a counter trades transaction. 
Okay, so that's how the Bitcoin world operates right now. It's mostly a digital collectible that has counter tradeability, which superficially makes it look a bit like a monetary system. But in reality, it rides on top of the monetary system. All right, which can actually be kind of interesting. It does mean you can do certain interesting strategies with that. It's not totally useless. Um, but it does mean the Bitcoin narrative is largely spurious. Interesting. <laughs> so if, uh, if to wrap up, if you were to make a wish for the, I mean, why are you doing everything you're doing? What's your wish for the monetary future? Well, I mean, look, I think it's very important to maintain balances of power. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have a quite a strong sort of anarchist kind of intuition, shall I say, like, at, you know, at some level, at some deep level, I don't, I'm politically realistic. I realize we live in the systems that we live in. But, you know, one of the intuitions that comes from a sort of anarchisty way of seeing the world is to say, look, you don't want to have singular players dominating everything or like singular groups of players. You want to try and create these balances of power such that the worst excesses of systems don't mm -hmm. come out. All right. As I said, Uber is only empowering insofar as you have a choice to not use it. All right. And That's it's a similar right. thing with also money, money systems. That's like, there's no way in hell I'd want Bitcoin to be the entire monetary system system of the world. All right. But I can appreciate that it's forming an interesting type of sort of marginal counterpower. All right. I can appreciate that it has these interesting marginal uses. Um, and it's quite similar. It's, it's one of the reasons why I promote cash as well, saying, hey, we need to keep keep these types of you know um, balances of power in the system. All right. So actually, you know, that's the kind of way I think about it. There isn't really a some utopian end state to that. Um, but I am very supportive of people who try to build alternative forms of money. Um, and I would encourage anybody who's like trying to do that to um, not get too caught up in the kind of sort of crypto ideology and try to look at the sort of the deeper traditions of alternative money, look into mutual credit, look into these types of in the anthropology of money. You'll tend to find a lot more useful stuff about, you know, interesting alternatives from that literature than from the sort of crypto hype, um, which often is very mm -hmm. shallow. And I think there's lots of great stuff that can be done by hybridizing these different things together. Um, and actually, in, say, the crypto world, there are a whole range of new projects that are emerging that are actually quite interesting um, and mm. have, like, quite intriguing potentials and from, from a monetary perspective. So keeping various money choices seem to be... <laughs> Balances the, of power. Yeah, going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but to keep the balance of power. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Cool. Thank you very much for, for yeah, joining. It wasn't that too was complex. Uh, some interesting new perspective. Yeah, there was some new uh, perspectives that I haven't heard before. Thank you very much for sharing. Sure. <laughs> Great to be here. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. And if you want to read up more about the guest, then you can go to the show notes to get all of the links. And also, if you like this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to the newsletter to never miss the latest episode. Thank you for today. See you in the next episode.